Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I have some good news for you. The hottest take. It's back. Oh, yeah. Monday through Thursday, four times a week, you hear from me, Chris Ryan, Sean Fantasy, Mallory Rubin, Wazdeen Lambrey, Van Lathan, Julie Lippman, many other ringer staffers. You get one take, you got to defend it to the death. Sports takes, pop culture takes, food takes, airplane takes. Oh, yeah. It's coming back. First episode drops August 29th. It's the Ringers Philly special presented by FanDuel. The playoff action is heating up. And with FanDuel, you can bet on everything from the NBA Finals MVP to who's going to lift the Stanley Cup. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Parlay Hub, filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays all on one page. Plus, start betting on the pulse and get paid instantly when you win. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome to the Ringers Philly special. Shiel Kapadia here. We've got a treat today. Very excited to have on the legend, the goat, whatever label you want to put on the man who has educated us on the Eagles for 50 plus years, Ray Dittinger. Ray, thank you so much for doing this. It's great to see you. Great to see you, Shiel. Great to be with you, Um, especially right now. Um, This is, uh, needless to say, a very, very happy time in Philadelphia. Yeah, how about it? We said we launched the podcast in August. Since then, the Phillies go to the World Series. The Eagles are in the Super Bowl, so we're going to take uh, at least some credit for the success in Philadelphia. But I got to start with the question, probably when you're walking around town, everyone wants to know. You retired in May. Uh, We met right before you retired, wrote the story on The Athletic. And what everyone wanted to know on that time is, how is Ray Dittinger going to spend his Sundays in the fall? We're used to seeing him on TV after every game. We know he's got the legal pads in the studio taking notes the entire time. I talked to your son, David. He said, yeah, we've never even sat down and watched an Eagles game before because Ray has always been working this entire time. So take me through what this experience has been like this season. And most importantly, how did you spend Sundays? What were you doing? <laughs> uh, different for sure. Um, I have been covering the team for 53 years. Um, so David's quite right. Uh, he and I had never actually watched a game together as father and son. So we got a chance to do that. Uh, the opener this year, Eagles at Detroit, uh, was the first time we actually sat on the couch together and, uh, and watched an Eagles game, which was tremendous fun. We really enjoyed that. Um, and yeah, I, I just was watching the games on TV, uh, like everybody else. Um, you know, I, I will say this, I, 
I was taking my notes. Uh, after all these years of uh, after all these years of watching football that way, um, I really can't watch a game any other way. I mean, if I'm if I'm watching a game, particularly an Eagles game, I want to have my notepad there so that I can log everything, down distance coverages, you know, red zone. I mean, that that's kind of. If I'm not doing that, I feel if I'm just sitting back eating a pizza and drinking a soda, I don't feel like I'm really watching a football game. I'm not getting the total experience. So the yellow legal pads were there all season, um, but it was um, it was great fun. I mean, you mentioned in the lead in uh, just what a great time it's been in Philadelphia, you know, with the whole that very unlikely Phillies run uh, into the uh, postseason, which became Red October. Uh, and just really kind of galvanized the whole city. I mean, the, the people were tremendously excited about that Philly season, and rightfully so. And then, boy, it just went straight from that right into, you know, the f- baseball season ends, Phillies World Series ends, and all of a sudden, you know, hey, the Eagles are the last unbeaten team in the NFL. Maybe we're going to the Super Bowl. Well, why not? <laughs> you know. So, uh, so for a city that has um, had its share of heartbreaks and disappointments, uh, these last few months have been uh, have really been nirvana. And, uh, you know, and I've been able to sort of sit on the sidelines and just enjoy it all. Yeah, for a while. Now, you're back on the postgame show for uh, for NBC. So you got roped in a little bit here uh, at the end. Has that been fun for you to kind of jump in as they're uh, in the playoffs? As you said, you were doing the prep anyway. I mean, you were just showing me the, yeah. the legal pads and the notepads. So uh, what was that like to say? Well, I guess I could jump in here a little bit and uh, have my voice out there as Eagles fans have been accustomed to. Yeah, that was kind of it. I mean, I... Uh, um, <laughs> I got a call. Well, when the Eagles were rolling, when they were, you know, eight and zero, last unbeaten team, um, you know, my wife actually said, "You know, they're going to be calling you to come back." You know, and I said, "Ah, no, nah, I don't think so." <laughs> and sure enough, the very next day, uh, the phone rang, uh, and it was Michael Barkan, and. Uh, and Michael said, you know, listen, you know, it's obvious this team's going to the playoffs. <clears throat> and once they go to the playoffs, you know, we're just going to be nothing but wall-to-wall Eagles coverage. So, you know, would you be willing to come back and just be part of all that? So I talked it over with my wife. You know, I didn't want to go down the same road that Tom and Giselle did. You know, we, we all saw how that ended. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to really talk this through and make sure she was okay with it. Um, but she said, you know, um, look, I, I, I really expected this. You know, I fully expected this. And look, I recognize that this is a, you know, this isn't a season that anyone foresaw. Uh, and these kinds of seasons don't come along every year, you know. So she said, yeah, I, I get it. You know, if, if they want you to come back, you know, I, I think you should probably do it. And uh, if it ends up in another Super Bowl, you know, it'll be one more chapter to the book. Yeah, I've been trying to remind myself of what you just said about these seasons don't come along all the time, you know, because for most of my, the first, I think I said on the last uh, podcast, I guess the first 20 years of my life, it hadn't happened at all. And then 2004 rolls around and now it's the second one in six years. And you're thinking about oh, 2017, you kind of know how this goes, but 
this is unusual. This is uncommon to get there two times in six years. So I think uh, Eagles fans reminding themselves of that during these two weeks, during the lead up uh, to the Super Bowl will be important. I wanted to ask you about some of the just the, the key figures with this team, you know, and starting off with the coach, Nick, Nick Sirianni. I mean, you're you were uh, talking about this team all the time when he got hired during his first season there in 2021. What have your impressions been of Sirianni from kind of that opening press conference to the watering of the plants to the three and six start to kind of now where he is now in the Super Bowl? in his second season and just the, the personality, the way he carries himself. I think we, we both probably agree that more characters uh, in the NFL make for a better product, whether you're media or a fan. What have you thought about kind of the job Sirianni uh, has done here? Well, um, I mean, you kind of laid it out pretty well there. I mean, when you consider how it started, um, I mean, I've been covering Eagles coaches press conferences for well, half a century. So uh, I've seen them all. Um, I've seen everybody's introduction from going back to, you know, Joe Q. Harrick and uh, Jerry Williams and Eddie Kai. I mean, all of them. Uh, and I've never seen one get off to a worse start than Nick Sirianni's. I mean, it was, uh, <clears throat> I mean, you can look back on it now and laugh. and I'm sure he does. Um, but nobody was laughing then. Uh, I mean, it was uh, it was it was a, it was a disaster. I mean, it was it was a catastrophe. I mean, especially for a guy that nobody knew. You know, if if you had hired a coach with you know a handful of Super Bowl rings, and he got up and had a bad press conference, you'd say, well, who cares? You know, the guy we know who we know this guy wins. We know he's successful. Okay, he's not great at a podium, but who cares? But the thing was that Nick had to sell himself. <laughs> to the fans here because nobody knew who he was and that first that i mean that first show i mean i mean the only thing missing was the soupy sales pie in the face i mean everything everything else was i mean that was the only thing missing it was it was just awful now in his defense in fairness it was a it was a weird setup i mean we were in the middle of you know covid was still in place uh he was standing in an empty room at a podium uh, doing the whole thing by Zoom, uh, fielding questions from people he had never met, uh, and uh, and he was in a position he had never been. So, yeah, I mean, it's uh, I don't know anybody could have pulled that off successfully, um, but it was definitely a crash and burn kind of thing. And then that just sent the city into a tizzy that, oh, my God, where did they find this guy? This is going to be the worst hire ever. Um, I mean, people wanted to fire him then. I mean, people, yeah. wanted, people wanted people wanted to fire him on the basis of this press conference. Um, and uh, and listen, it, it, you know, things didn't get off to the best of starts there. The questions were questions were being asked. And, you know, like network sources were all saying, oh, I'm talking to some of the players and they don't know about this guy. They think he's in over his head, blah, 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 which only reinforced what the fans already thought. So, I mean, Nick dug himself a very deep hole. Uh, and the way the season started, it was fair to wonder if he was ever going to get out of it. I mean, it started yeah. really badly. Um, you know, there's the the week they're getting ready to play the Dallas game. He spends the whole week walking around in T-shirts and say, beat Dallas. Uh, I thought, bad idea. <laughs> you know, this, you know that, that, that can't possibly help you. You know, that can't possibly help you. Look, the, the players already know 
the goal is beat Dallas. Fan, you don't have to tell the fans here about beat Dallas. They've been living that for 40 years. You don't have to wear it, okay? And the, that can only do one thing, which is wind up on a bulletin board in Dallas, okay? So, I mean, that was a bad idea from the jump. Then the game comes out, and they just get crushed on national television. And that's when the call came up. I mean, there were really, WIP, there were really calls the next day. The people wanted him fired then. Uh, they, they wanted to, they said, look, just admit it. Admit it now. Admit you made a mistake. And let's just get rid of this guy and just move on. That was being said, okay? Yeah. Uh, and then he follows that up with his press conference where he starts talking about, well, you know, when you when you're growing, it's like growing flowers. And, you know, sometimes you don't actually see what's happening below the surface. And things are taking root and say blossom into these beautiful things. And it's like, oh, my God. Um, but you know what? He was right. Yeah. He was right. Uh, I mean, nobody was willing to give him the benefit of the doubt at the time. But the fact is, what he was saying is, you know, we're, you know, we got something pretty good work in here, but it's not going to happen overnight. Um, but if you just give it time and water it properly and feed it properly, um, the, I think that I think that we're going to have a pretty good team here. Now, nobody saw it at the time uh, except him. Uh, but shortly after that, it, you know, they, they got on a roll. And to his credit, um, he did something that coaches are loath to do. He changed. Uh, he, you know, he had, he came in with an idea that they wanted to he wanted to throw the ball, and he still wants to throw the ball. Uh, but that game in Dallas, where that they're getting hammered, and and Miles Sanders has like two carries at halftime. It was, um, I think, he recognized. Look, this is something that coaches very often are unwilling to take the long view of things, but he did, and it came, comes back to something very simple: What's the strength of my team? You know, what's our strength? Hmm, it's the offensive line. Maybe we should just lean on them and just let the offensive line play and start running the ball because we got the best line in the league and we got some pretty good backs. And we have a quarterback who can certainly bring a running dimension to our offense. You know what? Let's start running the ball. And they did. And they started running the ball and the whole thing turned around, you know, and then go to the playoffs and okay, you're overmatched against the defending champs, but. He got to the playoffs, uh, and then this year they come back and take it to, you know, a whole nother level. So, yeah, the Nick Sirianni story is, you know, one of the great comebacks, <laughs> one of the great yeah. comebacks we've ever seen here for sure. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great point about every coach says, uh, I'll adjust to whatever the strengths of my team are, but the ones who actually do it end up being the good coaches. It's not easy to do, uh, like you mentioned, and even you saw in the last game when – other stuff isn't working. They have the, that to lean on. O-line, run, running game with Hurts involved in it. It's kind of like this can at least get you to a certain floor when other stuff offensively isn't working. So I think you put it uh, well there for sure. Speaking of the quarterback, Jalen Hurts, uh, there's this conversation that's been ongoing. It's probably going to get uh, ratchet up here in the next two weeks as national media kind of comes in or descends on Glendale for the Arizona about how much of this is 
Jalen Hurts being a great player and elevating his teammates and being kind of the core of what the Eagles offense does? And how much is it the supporting cast, the O-line we mentioned, the receivers lifting up Jalen Hurts and him being kind of this cog in the uh, entire machine? So I know there's no like exact answer or percentage to put on it, just but I'm sure you've heard that conversation. You've engaged mm-hmm. in that conversation. What are your thoughts on kind of Hurts, the quarterback, and his role in kind of making this thing go? Well, um, you know, I think that uh, in football, as in all things, you know, both can be true. You know, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be either or. Um, I think that there. I think there's no question that Jalen Hurts benefits by having really good people around him. I mean, the offensive line is. We said last year was the best in the NFL. Still is, uh, uh, and good running backs, and the addition of uh, AJ Brown has really completed that offense. So. There are good people around him, no question. Uh, and the design of the offense through Nick and Shane Staken is excellent. So he's be- he's the beneficiary of all of that, and that's fair to say. Uh, but there's also the part of it that, yeah, as good as that is, he lifts it uh, with his leadership, uh, with his command of what's happening, and his ability to execute both as a runner and a passer. I mean, we saw last year that he can really run. Well, and I mean, we saw that at Alabama. When, when I first saw him play at Alabama, I wasn't sure uh, that he could be an NFL quarterback because I didn't think he threw the ball well enough. But when he transferred to Oklahoma and I saw how much he had improved as a passer, then I thought, you know, this guy has a chance. Um, but what he's done now, and listen, give him full credit because he did it through hard work. I mean, he worked and worked and worked to make himself into a much better passer now to where he's a good passer. You know, I mean, he can really throw the ball. And I know one of the questions that was asked, if it was asked once, it was asked a million times in this offseason, because I know I got asked it. You know, I'm not sure his arm's strong enough. You know, I don't know if he has enough arm to be an NFL quarterback. I don't know if he can throw the deep ball. Uh, and this year, if you look at the splits in, in the passer ratings, he was the best deep ball passer in the league this year in terms of his efficiency beyond 25 yards. Uh, and that was a question where people thought he was possibly deficient. And this year, he actually excelled. So, I mean, that's just – and that didn't happen overnight. And that just didn't happen because he woke up one morning and could do it. I mean, he just worked and worked and worked. He recognized that, okay, you know, you're probably right. I need to get better in that area. And he put in the work to do that. So, you know, to your question, Shield, you know, which, you know, which is true? Is it, is it him? Is it him making the offense or the offense making him? I think it's probably both. It's probably equal parts both. But the fact is what they have right now is a pretty dynamic system. And it's being led by a pretty dynamic player. Yeah, no no doubt. You saw it when Gardner Minshew was in there. One good game, one bad game, but it's a different offense. It's not, you can't right. just plug in what might be considered a little below average uh, level quarterback there and everything is still going to work. So I think you, uh, as you always do with a little nuance and a little context, uh, said it well there. 
Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddleboards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. I wanted to zoom out a little bit because I'm looking at this team and wondering, is there a good comp for this Eagles team previously in Eagles history? And if so, what is it? I I was thinking about this question and thinking, well, 2017, you had the second year head coach and the young quarterback on a rookie contract. Uh, 2004, I remember it felt like offensively, just when Tio was healthy, I mean, you just watched and you thought, wow, this looks really easy. They look unstoppable. And there have been so many games this year where you watch the Eagles and say, this looks easy. They're just going down the field with these. Maybe there's another team that I'm not even thinking of that had just kind of the sheer amount of talent uh, like this Eagles team has. Is there, do any of those resonate at all? Is it some kind of combination of those? Is there another team? Uh, I'm forgetting. I, I probably should have prepped you with this question, right? And at least I could have been nice and emailed it to you beforehand. So you could have thought about it, but you're used to this. So what do you think? Is there a good cop for this Eagles team? Uh, I think it is. Um, to me, it's, it's most reminiscent of 04. Uh, okay. Because I think that, uh, you know, you have, a young quarterback. I mean, Donovan was still, I mean, he was a veteran, but he was a, still a young quarterback. Uh, and you had um, a team with a very good offensive line. Um, I mean, Trey Thomas, John Runyon, um, really good players. Uh, you had a the addition by trade of a dynamic wide receiver. I mean, that team, it's, it's Terrell Owens. This team, it's A.J. Brown. Uh, Very similar type guys. Big, physical, can rip the ball away from a defender, uh, can take it to the house anytime, any play. Um, You know, a a new weapon that you had brought in that year to really kind of complete your offense, and and they did. Um, So I, I think as an offensive team, this team reminds me of that team. Uh, and also a team that just rolled through the regular season uh, and people just didn't seem capable, didn't have any answers for stopping it. The difference is probably on the defensive side, uh, and it's as much philosophical as it is talent. I mean, that defense had Jim Johnson calling the plays, and Jim Johnson was, I mean, he 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 was, he was a Buddy Ryan type. I mean, uh, he was just, he wanted to blitz all the time. It was all about getting pressure on the quarterback. Took a lot of chances. Uh, was willing to let his backs, willing to let the secondary play man one on one. Had no problem with that. Uh, but it was it was a high pressure, very physical, very fast, very aggressive defense. This defense is really good. I mean, you look statistically at how good they are. Hard to argue against it actually gets more sacks than that group, um, but does it in a totally different way. You know, Jonathan Gannon philosophically is is over here and Jim Johnson's over here. But the fact of the matter is both, both systems certainly work. Uh, and um, I think that this year, this year's addition of this defense is 
is is the best that it's been. You know, I think that bringing in Bradbury and having him joining Slay as the two corners has really nailed down the two corner positions. Uh, and I'm not taking anything away from the from the defensive line and the 70 sacks, which is a pretty impressive total. But the the secondary has has accounted for a lot of that. I mean, you have a lot of quarterbacks that are, you know, that want to get, listen, they all want to get rid of the ball fast against this defensive line. But when you have two corners that are as good as Bradbury and Slay locking guys down, sometimes you want that ball out of your hands, but you got nowhere to go. So the, the whole, the whole thing has really, it's working very, very well together. And, you know, that's, you know, when you look down the road for the Super Bowl and you start doing the matchups and this strength against this strength and so forth, you know, the one one of the ones you come you hit right away is the, the magician that is Patrick Mahomes working against this defense, you know, and how is he going to attack it? And also, how is it going to attack him? It's going to be, you know, it, it, it is really going to be a fun game to watch. Yeah, I wanted to follow up on that, what you were talking about with uh, Gannon and the defense compared to what we're, everyone in the city has been used to seeing for uh, 40 years or so with the way the Eagles, just their defensive philosophy. And I think for a lot of people, I'll include myself in this, it's been tough to shake 2021 where we remember the 90% completions from Derek Carr or Patrick Mahomes or Justin Herbert. Those those games are still imprinted in our head. But like you said, you look at this year and they've really passed every test. Now, they haven't been tested by the three or four best quarterbacks in the NFL like we're going to see in the Super Bowl, but they've passed every test. Statistically, the defense has been fantastic. When you look at Jonathan Gannon and, you know, whether it's uh, Nick Sirianni launched the, the defense of him towards Angelo in the press conference a couple of weeks ago, how much of this is, all right, you know, he's doing it a different way, but it's still working. How much of it is they haven't been tested? How much of it is, well, they just have really good players. And maybe this is more a Howie Roseman victory than a coaching victory. Like, what are your thoughts on Gannon, this defensive philosophy, given the, the rules of the modern NFL and what you've seen from him this year? Yeah, I mean, um, I had some of those same questions. Uh, I... You can't, you can't argue against the statistics. You can't argue against the numbers. Um, I mean, what they've done this year, their overall ranking, um, points allowed, um, sacks, I mean, all of that stuff. I mean, by, by every metric, they're an excellent defense, top three, top four. Um, my only question was, what's going to happen if they get into a game uh, and the other team is is winning the battle at the line of scrimmage, and they're not, they're holding off your front four, you know that that front four or five, uh, and they're and all of a sudden now that quarterback is in the pocket and he's comfortable and he's got some time. Uh, will in those situations, will Jonathan Gannon be willing to say, okay, this isn't what I really want to do, but I'm going to have to start dialing up some blitzes here. I'm going to start bringing some people and doing some things differently uh, and get pressure on the quarterback. Not, it's not, it, you know, it's not plan A for me, but plan A right plan A right now ain't getting it done. So I'll go to plan B or C. Um, and that's, 
that to me was the question. When they get into those games, and I was thinking specifically the postseason, you know, how are they going to deal with those situations? Will he be willing to kind of depart and take some chances and be more aggressive? Um, and I thought I saw some signs of it in the Giants game. Uh, I mean, the the interception that Bradbury gets, uh, which is a big play, it sort, of, it sort of gives the Eagles the ball and they score another touchdown and blow the game open. Um, the, uh, I mean, there, there was a play when he, he, blitzed, he blitzed the safety, which isn't something that he normally does, but he did it. And he did it at exactly the right moment. And he did it in a way that it caught Daniel Jones completely off guard. And all of a sudden, here's the safety coming right in his face. And now he doesn't have time to look. So he's just reflexively, okay, I'm going to go to the flat. And he doesn't see James Bradbury sitting there. So that easy interception is set up by a perfectly timed safety blitz. And, you know, the fact, and I, that was a play that I, I, I circled in my notepad, because to me that was significant. That's not on the front page of Jonathan Gannon's playbook is, is that kind of thing. But he, he's in the right situation, in the right spot. It's just sort of instinctive. This is the time to call that right now, given this field position and this formation, this is the right call. And he did it, uh, and it led to a turnover and a big play in that game. So I think that impressed me that he was willing to take it, that shot, and he did it a couple more times in the game. Um, so – I think he understands the postseason. You got to throw a few curveballs now and again, uh, and he did it successfully against the Giants. Now, this you know this is a different test when you got the Chiefs and you got Patrick Mahomes, but um, and, and he's probably going to have to do a similar kind of thing this week to get uh, to get the pressure he needs because if you know we all you know we all know Patrick Mahomes is not quite 100 percent right now, but he's close enough. Uh, and if you let him start running around and and taking control of the game and feeling like he's in control of the game, then you could be in for a very long day. Yeah. On that Super Bowl matchup, I mean, I'm looking at it and, you know, we'll have two weeks worth of analysis. And by the time you get to the end, you say we've covered every aspect of this game and then someone muffs a punt or, you know, something weird happens and all of a sudden none of that ends up mattering, but just wanted to get more to build on that, your impressions of just this matchup early on and what's going to matter. I mean, you mentioned it. It seems like defensively what you mentioned is going to be so much uh, uh, of really what matters. Can the Eagles pass rush, which has gotten home all season long, affect, impact Patrick Mahomes, force him uh, into some negative plays? I mean, if we wanted to just do one line of analysis of whether the Eagles are going to win or not, that might be it. If they win that battle, they might w they win the game. If they don't win that battle, it could be a long day for the defense. But uh, that aside, is there anything else that kind of sticks out here between the Eagles offense first, Steve Spagnolo's uh, defense or Chris Jones or, or anything else, just as you're doing kind of your initial work about this matchup, the things you, you kind of have your eye on? Yeah, I think, I think you kind of touched on the two of them. Uh, it's the Eagles pass rush and their ability to get pressure and contain Patrick Mahomes. Um, and I think that they have the personnel to do that. I think the fact that you've got Reddick and you've got Graham uh, and you've got sweat, you've got good players on the edges. You can kind of, I'm sure the plans to try and keep home, keep Mahomes in the pocket and don't let him get outside. Where he, he can, he can, I mean, he can beat you a million ways when he's out there. 
So you kind of got to hem them in. And I think the Eagles have the kind of are, are, are structured in such a way that I think they can do that. Uh, I'm sure I'm sure that in Kansas City right now, um, Andy Reid, who began his coaching career as an offensive line coach, that's where it all started. Uh, I'm sure he's working overtime with his offensive line right now uh, and his offensive line coach. And this whole week is going to be about drawing up protections and just trying to figure out, okay, how are we going to block these guys? You know, and this, this is going to take, this game's really going to take Andy back to his roots. And when I say that, I'm not talking about Philadelphia. Okay. I'm talking about his roots when he started coaching as a former offensive lineman, coaching offensive lineman. Uh, I'm sure in Andy's mind, this game comes down to that. Can we protect, can we block their pass rush? Can we give Patrick the time to be Patrick? And that's that's a total offensive line game. So that's what's happening in Kansas City right now. They are burning the midnight oil, just putting in protections and working on their protections. Uh, on the other side, uh, I, I think the Eagles have a significant advantage offensively. You know, the Chiefs defense, um, I mean, Chris Jones is a real good player, real good player. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, I look at that defense, I don't know, you know. Uh, and, I mean, their linebackers, to me, look average, you know. Uh, honestly, in terms of a defensive setup, they kind of remind me a little of the Giants, you know. I mean, you know, the Giants have Dexter Lawrence, who's, a, who's really good in the middle. Uh, Chris Jones is probably better, but they're similar. Uh, and the Eagles found a way of neutralizing him. Uh, and attacked where the real weaknesses were at the second level, for sure. I think they can do the same thing against the Chiefs. Uh, and if the Eagles' offensive line can play the way it played against the Giants, um, they can really control the game. Uh, as, as Now, I don't think – I'm not necessarily saying you're going to have 38-7 because uh, I don't think Mahomes will allow it to get to that point. But the Eagles' offense – I think could really control this game if they don't, you know, and kind of you said this, if you don't make stupid mistakes, if you don't turn the ball over, you don't get a bunch of holding penalties that turn third and three into third and 13. I mean, if you, if you don't make those kinds of mistakes and you're just able to play your game, then I think the Eagles offense versus the Kansas city defense is a decided Philadelphia advantage. Yeah, I agree. It's hard to, I mean, anything can happen. It's hard to imagine a scenario where they're just going three and out over and over again against that right. Chiefs defense. Yeah, yeah. If they turn it over, if they take a bad sack, if they have penalties, anything can happen. But I was just looking up this morning. It's amazing how many rookies are playing for that Chiefs team. I mean, I think defensively, like five guys they had playing last week were rookies. Their rookies defensively have played over 3,000 snaps this season, which is uncommon in the NFL. So whether how much experience matters, we'll see. We see rookies perform, but they, they've got a lot, a lot of young guys kind of filling in there uh, on that defense. Uh, I wanted to zoom out for a couple more uh, big picture questions. One is on ownership. You've seen different 
Eagles owners throughout Leonard Toes, Norman Brayman, uh, Jeffrey Lurie. And I think, you know, I know I certainly don't like to come on here and just pat, you know, billionaire owner on the back is not, doesn't make for great podcasting or no one, no one uh, who's listening on their way to work or doing what they need to do really wants to hear that. But I was thinking about what we talked about at the top and kind of the run they've had since Jeffrey Lurie uh, bought the team. And especially since 2000, it's what, seven championship games, three Super Bowls, now a chance to win uh, two Super Bowls in six years. You've covered the entire NFL. How much does ownership matter? Does Jeffrey Lurie get too much credit, not enough credit? Is it just not fun uh, to talk about ownership? But just kind of looking back at, at his reign here and kind of where the Eagles are, how do you kind of put into perspective the direction um, he's had the franchise in? Yeah, well, um, I mean, I've been covering the team for 50 plus years and uh, I've seen several changes in, in the big chair uh, and he's clearly the best owner I've ever covered. And if you look back over the whole of the history of the franchise, he's the best owner, period. Um, um, I think that, I mean, you just, you, you asked a very good question there about uh, how much of a role does ownership play uh, in the National Football League in, in winning and losing teams, you know, organizations that win and lose. I think ownership is enormously important. Uh, I think it's very hard. I think it's very hard to field a winning team if you have bad ownership. I just don't, I just don't think it works. Uh, yeah. I, I think, but I think a bad owner, like a really bad owner can wreck a good franchise. You know, he's not just people just have this idea that he's the guy that sits up in the in the box and, you know, with his with his with his tall drink and his wife sitting next to him and just watches the games. Um, no, the, the owner sets the sets the sets the tone for everything. Uh, I mean, on the field and off the field. Uh, and and Jeff has done a really remarkable job of that. He hadn't been perfect, but I, I think he is. And if you just look at the whole of his ownership. I mean, he's been he's been good a heck of a lot more than he's been bad. Uh, and you talk about 17 trips to the postseason. That's a lot. I mean, that's a lot. If you look at the history of this franchise, I mean, they went decades without going to the postseason. You know, and now this guy's taking you there 17 times, won the NFC East 10 times, seven championship games. Um, I mean, there aren't too many organizations in the NFL that can match that. Uh, and, and he's done it. Uh, in a tough town. Uh, and it's, uh, I, I think it's really a credit to him. And especially, especially what's happened this year. You know, if this isn't like, I mean, the, the Patriots, the Packers, you know, teams like that, that were kind of going to the playoffs going like every year, you know, they win, they win, okay, they lose, but now they win and they come back. And, you know, what? like if the Patriots are kind of an anomaly, but you can't ignore it. I mean, they had that whole period there where, but it's, it's the coach and the quarterback never changed, you know, and, and, and the core of the team didn't change. I mean, it was the same kind of the same group. They worked around the fringes and they brought in some players here and there, but largely the, the nucleus of that team, what, you know, what, what made them the Patriots stayed in place for a very long time. You know, you consider what the Eagles have done here, where they were two years ago, to now, um, I mean, two years ago, it was a four-win team 
with that, that was firing its head coach and shopping around its franchise quarterback uh, in terrible salary cap shape. Um, I mean, the feeling that, I mean, there was every reason to think, man, this team is going down. <laughs> I mean, they're going to go way down and it's going to be a long time before they get back up. That in two years, you're back in the Super Bowl. I mean, that's, that's pretty remarkable. That's pretty remarkable with a new, with a, with a coach that nobody knew uh, and with a quarterback that a lot of people said couldn't play. Uh, and the guys in this organization, starting with Jeff and then going through Howie, believed that now this could work. And here they are. And right now they're going into the Super Bowl as favorites to win another one. And when you consider, and people don't, I think people kind of lose sight of how bad it was here two years ago. Yeah. I, mean, two, I mean, two years ago, people thought this team was, they were facing like a 10-year, let's try and climb the mountain again. And now they've been able to turn it around in this period of time. It's it's an amazing success story. And it didn't happen by accident. It happened because people upstairs knew what they were doing. Yeah, no no doubt about it. I, I, I was going to ask you, is, the, is it hyperbole to say this could be the most talent, just talented uh, Eagles team you've seen? I mean, I, I just look at it in a lot of weeks, we're doing all the analysis. Well, they did this offensively, X's and O's wise, and this works for them defensively. And then a lot of times I take a step back and just go, they had better players. They had better players at wide receiver than the other team's corners. They had better players on their offensive line than the other team's pass rush. Their pass rush was better than the other team's offense. I mean, you can literally go position by position. Even looking at this Chiefs matchup, you go position by position, and you're checking the box for the Eagles in a lot of those categories. I mean, do you think that statement is hyperbole, that this could be you know, the, the most talented Eagles team we've seen? That's a big question, I know. Yeah, it is. Um, <laughs> it is pretty sweeping. But, um, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not going to say no, you know. Okay. I, I think that it uh, – the 0 team was really good. Um, you know, that team was, that team was really good. Uh, and similar to – again, similar to this one in many ways, the construction of the offense, how good they were at the line. I, I, I see T.O. And, and A.J. Brown as very similar kinds of players. Yeah. Um, in, in, in some ways, you know, McNabb and Hertz are kind of similar quarterback. Uh, Hertz is more of a runner, but McNabb certainly represented that same threat. Uh, yeah, you know what? I, I think that just off the top of my head, uh, in terms of overall strength and personnel group by personnel group, uh, it's hard to point to this team and say anything about it is deficient. You know, yeah, they're they're really really good here and here, but you know that that area I'm not so sure. Um, I mean, they're really good. And the thing is, and this is where uh, this current Eagles team, even though Andy Reid has been gone for a while now, this team really still has kind of Andy Reid fingerprints on it. You know, because. Um, I mean, Andy always believed, and he would talk about this all the time, that games are won in the trenches. You know, you build a winning team on the offensive line and the defensive line. I mean, he really believed in that, uh, and he built his teams that way. And, you know, that was, the, that was again, I'm going back to 04, I suppose, but that was the construct of that team. Uh, and even though Andy's long gone and now on the other side, you know, that's the that's the construct of this team. And it was the philosophy that he brought to this organization, 
that has stayed on after him, you know, and Jeff and, and Howie Roseman subscribe to it totally. And by the way, so do I, you know, I, yeah. I, it's, it's very, it's very hard to really win in the NFL. Uh, and like, not just nine wins get to the playoffs, but all like really win. If you're not really good at the line of scrimmage, you can have a great quarterback that can kind of make up for some things, but you can't make up for everything. If you're really going to be a good team with a chance to win it all, you got to be really good, really good at the line of scrimmage. That was Andy's philosophy, and uh, it worked then. And even though he's no longer here, it's still working now. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. Uh, you were talking about the uh, Patriots and kind of they're you know able to sustain over a long period of time. And I wanted to ask you about that in reference to the Eagles. We're all we're all prisoners of the moment. In 2017, I remember said Carson Wentz goes down, and I said, well, they're eventually going to win a Super Bowl with Carson Wentz. We all saw what he did this year. He's young. They're going to be good. That didn't happen, uh, as we know. And so I wonder if you feel like they're set up now for kind of sustained success. I, I felt that since those early 2000s, that's what they've been chasing. Sure, you're always chasing the Super Bowl, but you, you know, Jeffrey Lurie, I feel like, and even Howie Roseman, they've wanted a run of, you know, whatever, five, eight, ten years where, yeah, you're going to have some bad injury luck some of those years, but you're going to be in the mix year in and year out. And even with Doug, I felt like some of those years – they kind of snuck in, you know, they were nine win teams. The division was bad and they got in. It didn't feel quite the same. Uh, do you feel like with Hertz, with Sirianni, like if I said to you, Hey Ray, what does this look like just five years from now? Are we still talking about, Hey, this is one of the top teams in the NFL. And these two guys are kind of at the core of everything they do. Or are you a little more cautious and say, let's, you know, this is a great year, but that type of thing, as you alluded to is very hard to sustain. It is, but I think that they're um, – and, you know, it would be f pretty foolish for either you or me to say – to start talking about, oh, it's a dynasty, you know, or they're going to – you know, they're going to win five more of these Super Bowls. You know, that, that's – because pro football things don't work that way, generally. <laughs> Sometimes they do, but not generally. And it'd certainly be very foolish to sort of try to foresee that. Um, but – I think the I think the only thing you can say fairly, with some degree of certainty, is they're in a good place right now. They're in a good place right now. Um, they have, you know, it's a uh, salary cap. There's there's the reality of the salary cap, and they're going to have to. They have been very fortunate that they've had their MVP quarterback uh, under uh, a rookie contract, second round draft pick rookie contract, by the way. Uh, for all this time, it's allowed them to do some of the things that they've done to bring in some players. Um, well, that's probably going to change, you know, this off season, even though they, I mean, they could, they could make him play on the last year of his rookie deal. Um, they could down the road franchise. I don't think, you know, I think they recognize that this guy is the leader of the team. Uh, and I fully expect this offseason they're probably going to, they're probably going to sign him to that big contract. Uh, and that'll change things a little bit. But I, I think that's what's going to happen. And, you know, Howie has been very smart about how he's done things here. We, you know, I mean, his drafts have been hit and miss, to be fair, and he would even tell you that. Uh, but the way he built this team this year um, – I mean, one rookie, he won executive of the year and justly so. I mean, it was to me, it was not even 
I don't even know if there was a close second. You could say John Lynch did a really good job at San Francisco, but Howie was was the best because you look at this team and Howie put it together. I mean, they're good for now, but they're set up very nicely for down the road. I mean, he's, you know, they could win the Super Bowl and have a top 10 pick in the draft coming up too, due to some right. of the things that he's done. So he's he's got he's built a team that can compete and win now, but without sacrificing next year, the year after, the year after. Unlike what the Rams did last last year, you know, when they just I mean, they went all in to to win it last year because they're trying to they're trying to win the LA market and they're trying to, you know, establish something in Los Angeles, which is a lousy foot pro football town, by the way. But that's another <laughs> that's another discussion for another day. I could never understand I never understood why Roger Goodell in the league office was so hell bent on putting pro football back in LA. Because the people in LA don't care. <laughs> they, they were perfectly fine without pro football. But, you know, the NFL, you know, they can't, they had to be in that market. So I get it. And once they got yeah. it, the Rams knew, okay, so we got to, we got to go all in and try and win this thing and try and get the city behind us. Well, they did and they won and great. That's fine. But you see where they are now. Um, well, yeah. you know, Howie has, has done just the opposite. I mean, he's built a team that's capable of winning this year and very well may but a team that is certainly not going to fall off a cliff the way the Rams did next year. It's, it's very hard to do both, but, but how he has been able to do that. Yeah, no, no, no doubt about it. I, I have uh, one more for you. And then I know Cliff uh, is pumped you're on and wants to get uh, his one question in as well. So my last one is just about the psychology of the, the Eagles fan. You know, it really struck me going into that championship game. And I don't know if you felt the same way. Everybody was so confident. I mean, I had never heard probably since that Bucks game, the last game at the vet was, the, and, and I was in the stands for that one. That was the last time it felt like the entire fan base was just thinking, we're winning this game. I mean, there's, there was like no question that, you know, the seeds of doubt, the dread that typically accompanies a Philadelphia sports fan where you're thinking worst case scenario, that was not present at all going into that game, whether it was Brock Purdy, Jimmy Garoppolo, Josh Johnson, or whoever else. And so I was trying to figure out why that was? What happened? Because that's not the, the Eagles fan. That's not the Philadelphia fan I grew up with and the Philadelphia fan I knew. And I was wondering, did the Super Bowl change something? That everything went right, that postseason run, and that changed something uh, in everyone's mind. And now they have a different mindset going forward. It, maybe it's not that. Is it just that they've watched this team all year? And they said, you know what? They've earned my trust because I watch them every week and every week they come through and they've had a couple bad games and they come back the next week with counters. And so as, you know, the resident, uh, I don't know, a psychologist of the Philadelphia sports fan for, like you said, over 50 years, having had more conversations probably than literally anyone on earth with the Philadelphia sports fan. I wonder if you had the same kind of impressions from Eagles fans going into that game. And if so, what you kind of think that might be due to yeah i think that uh you're right um this the city was incredibly confident about the 49ers game i, I thought maybe overconfident you know yeah. um i mean i thought I, I thought the eagles would win but i didn't expect it to be easy um heck i didn't expect the giants game to be easy really i mean if you look if you look at postseason if you look at the nfl postseason Games just don't play out that way. I mean, you know, even if one team is significantly better than the other team, they wind up usually playing a pretty close game because that's just the nature of playoff football. 
um, you know, Seattle hung with the 49ers and, and had them on the ropes in the, in, in the end of the second half of that game. Now, the 49ers finally won, but it, it wasn't easy. Um, you know, Jacksonville, the same thing. I mean, you know, Jacksonville, I mean, they hung in there with the, with the Chiefs, even though they're not as good. But it wound up being a close one score kind of game. That's just the way postseason games tend to play out. So I always try to caution people. Yeah, you're the guy, the better team, but this isn't easy. This isn't going to be easy. Postseason games just aren't. Well, the Eagles had two of them where they were. Um, you know, they blow out the Giants, who had been playing really well. I mean, the Giants had played their best game in Minnesota and came in here playing really good. Jones had played really well. Dexter Lawrence was a monster. And I thought, you know, you got two division opponents. It's it's not going to be easy, you know. And yeah, it was. <laughs> and then uh, and then San Francisco, the same people were saying, oh, we're going to walk all over that team. I said, well, no, they're the number one defense. And you know, and they say, well, they got this rookie quarterback who's you know, Mister Irrelevant, blah blah blah. And I say, yeah, well, they also got Christian McCaffrey and Debo Samuel, and you know, they got some pretty good players. And yeah, it it, it was funny to me. Because these are the same fans that back in the day were saying, we can't possibly lose a championship game to Brad Johnson, you know, or, you know, oh, come on, championship game. And if we're going to lose to Jake DeLome, you know, at home in Philly, no way. Well, you know, we all know what happened. So uh, I was telling people, look, just don't get ahead of yourselves, you know. And now so far they've met every challenge. And I'm starting to hear the same things now about the Super Bowl. I mean, there are people now that are saying, oh, we're going to win. You know, we're going to win. Yeah, you know, I heard somebody say to me, we're going to blow out the Chiefs. <laughs> oh, two weeks before the game, you're talking about winning the Super Bowl in a blowout. Yeah, I mean, for all those, for all the sake of all those people, I hope that happens. But I, I wouldn't count on it. You know, you got Andy Reid is, uh, is one, is won 100 games for two different teams. He's they're engraving his plaque in Canton as we speak. You got Patrick Mahomes is one of the most dynamic quarterbacks we've seen in generations. Um, I mean, I don't think by any means this is going to be easy, but this level of confidence that the fans have, um, you know, I think you were kind of suggesting have, have the Philadelphia fans changed? Have they gone from being these chronic warriors that, Oh my God, the sky's going to fall to, Oh, we're going to blow out. The... I don't think they've changed. Um, uh, but I, I think it speaks to their level of confidence in this team, that they've seen this team this year and that they truly, truly buy into the idea that, you know what, they're the best team in the league. You know, I, I think they really believe that. And in their heart of hearts, they didn't believe that in 2017. You know, they were, you know, they, they probably were the best team for a good portion of the season. But after Wentz got hurt, and Nick, they didn't know. And going into the playoffs, remember that everybody adopted the whole underdog thing. It was quite the opposite yeah. than what we're feeling now. Um, but I think what you're feeling in the city now, which is this burgeoning confidence, it just seems to be growing by the day, is really just rooted in the fact that, yeah, you know what? We're the best team. Uh, and I think we're going to go to Arizona and prove it. I think that's what the city's feeling. Now, it guarantees you nothing. You know, and next Sunday they're going to tee it up and we'll see what happens. But right now, I think the fans here are feeling really good about this. 
Yeah, I think you're right about that because thinking about it, it is specific to it feels specific to this team because in 18 and 19 and even last year there wasn't this same feel like no one was no. last year was saying they're going to kill the Bucs. So I, I don't think it is that the Super Bowl changed anything. I think you're right. It's just they've watched this team all season. All right, Cliff, you want to get in here? I know you have a you wanted to get a question in uh, for Ray. So so go ahead. No, Ray, this is for all the you know the young. Journals, journals that are trying to get into the sports world. <laughs> Obviously, you've had a long story career from the Bulletin to the Daily News to Sports Radio 94 WIP. And I just want to get that out there. Like, you're beloved in the city, and that's hard to be in Philadelphia. Like, every major sports media figure, there's some level of hate. <laughs> it, it sounds funny, but it's true. Now, why do you think you've been beloved for so long and so well-respected and so revered? Well, thanks for saying that, Cliff. That's really nice. Um, uh, I I don't know. <laughs> I, I wish I wish I could answer you. I, I got asked that a lot back in May when I retired. Um, I mean, Sheil, Sheil, when you came to interview me to do the story for The Athletic, uh, you kind of asked me the same sort of thing uh, about how I've somehow sort of achieved this place in the Philadelphia sports community where we're as, as volatile and opinionated and back and forth as it tends to be name calling and backstabbing and all the things that, uh, that are seem to be part and parcel of this. You, you don't seem to be in, in any of that, you know, people just, it's hard to find somebody that says anything bad about you. Um, and I, I don't know why other than the only way I can possibly explain it uh, is I think people have seen me long enough, heard me long enough, and read me long enough that they know that um, that I'm honest. You know, I, I am just straight up honest in my opinion. Um, I don't have an agenda. Uh, I don't play favorites. Uh, I don't uh, make criticism personal. Uh, I I respect the coaches and players that I cover. Uh, I respect what they do. I respect how good they are at what they do. Uh, so when it comes time to criticize them, uh, I do it in a way that's respectful. I mean, I, I don't pull my punches, but I also don't make fun uh, because I know this is their lives, you know, and it's not something trivial or it's not something that I want to be a smart aleck about. Um, so I think that I've tried to carry myself in that kind of way where uh, I've been honest, I've been, um, uh, I, and I think the other thing is that I think people, yeah, I think they sense the fact that I really love what I do and that, and that deep down, I'm no different than they are. You know, I mean, I grew up here drinking the same water, eating the same cheese steaks, rooting for and dying with the same teams that they did. Uh, and I think they see me as kind of a reflection of who they are. Uh, and that doesn't hurt in this town, you know, that they kind of, if we've had great journalists come through here, but they've come from different places. You know, Stan Hockman came from New York. Bill Lyon came from Illinois. Tom Cushman came from Illinois. Um, you know, Frank Dolson came from New York. I mean, a lot of really great journalists have come this way, but they haven't been from Philly. Uh, and I think the fact that, uh, you know, I have my roots here 
has helped a lot too. I, I think that the people here kind of see me in a, a large way, kind of a reflection of who they are and that they probably all wish that they could have been as lucky as me to be in my seat for the last 50 years doing what I'm doing. Uh, but I think they respect the fact that uh, I did it as well as I could. Sure. And and what's uh, one more, just what's the level of dedication you have to have, right? Because a lot of people feel like it's super easy to do this. You know, you just, you get in front of a microphone and you talk, Shield can write a piece and he can get it out to the masses. But can you just describe just the real level of dedication and time spent doing this you must have in order to be successful in this industry? Yeah, true. I mean, it, it, it wasn't easy. Uh, it, it really wasn't easy. I mean, Shield probably knows this a little bit, um, or certainly heard the stories about, uh, you know, how hard, how hard it was for me to write. I, I was, you know, one of my books is uh, the collected works of the world's slowest sports writer, because I was, I mean, I was, um, I, I can safely make this prediction that I set a record that I promise you will never be broken. I was the last man out of the press box at 25 consecutive Super Bowls. Now, I don't think that one's ever going to fall, you know, uh, and that's no exaggeration. 25 from Super Bowl five all the way through Super Bowl 30. I turned out the lights in the press box at 25 straight Super Bowls, uh, not because I wanted to, but that's just how long it took me to write. Um, so all of those hours sweating over the portable typewriter, which later became a computer, um, we're hard, and, and, I, and I wish I could have been faster, but I just couldn't do it. But I also wasn't going to cut any corners. Every time I sat down to write, I, I made a promise to myself that I'm going to, I'm going to work as hard as I can to make this as good as it can be. Uh, and to do that every day for 40 years, it was hard. It really was. I'm not going to say it was, it, I wish it were easier, but you know what, Cliff, it was, it was what I wanted to do. I mean, I, I never really in my whole life ever wanted to do anything other than this. Uh, and the fact that I had the opportunity to do it, um, I was just so thankful that every day I sat down to write, even though I knew I'd be sweating blood before it was over, I was grateful for the opportunity because this was what I wanted to do. And looking back over my life, I, I, I wouldn't change a thing. I feel so lucky to have been able to do what I've done and best of all, to be able to do it in my hometown. I really don't think life gets any better than that. Awesome, as, awesome. As usual, Cliff comes in with the best questions and the best segment of the entire show when he hops on the mic. Listeners are used to that. That's nothing new. Cliff, when I did the story on Ray, just to kind of go back to your first question there and kind of what I learned from talking to people about him and also having watched him and listened to him over the years. I mean, I think it's a few things. One is that he, he did the work. I mean, he's the first person I remember telling me what he saw on film from an Eagles game. And I thought, wow, this, this is cool. I don't know that everybody uh, is doing that. So that's number one but even though he knew more than everyone else he didn't talk down to anybody I mean you listen to callers call in ask about a prospect to play he'll explain it he'll talk about it without talking down to them and then as listeners know from listening to this or to Ray in the past he's just a very nice person I mean the stories about him are legendary from him walking down the street to walking into a Wawa he has time for everybody because of what he just said uh, he, he's been fortunate he acknowledges he's been fortunate to do what he's uh, loved to do and so he does 
doesn't turn people away or act like he's uh, he's bigger than them. And then at the same time, uh, he's not a homer. When Ray calls anybody out, everybody says, okay, well, there must be something to it because Ray is going after this guy or this play or this decision. And so there comes a trust there where it's not shtick, it's not inauthentic, it's because uh, it's warranted. So that's just my perspective. I know Ray answered the question, so I don't know why I'm still answering it, but uh, I just wanted <laughs> to give my uh, my two cents on that, Cliff. Ray, sorry, sorry to bother you for one more, but um, just speaking of an, another thing about relationships here, you and uh, Glenn Mack now are like legends in Philly, Philly Sports Talk Radio, and you guys did a weekend show together and you know many more broadcasts as well. Can you just speak on that relationship um, with Glenn Mack now and how that began and how that is now? Yeah, um, it. Uh, you're right. It uh, it it just clicked. Uh, and there's um, the, people think that Glenn and I like were friends before. Um, oh, you both worked at the newspaper, so you knew each other. Not really. No. I mean, he. You know, Glenn worked at the Enquirer. I worked at the Daily News. At that time, they were two totally independent operations. So we were competitors, if anything. Uh, but I knew him, uh, and I mean. I, our conversations consisted of saying hello in the press box. <laughs> that was it. Uh, and WIP, uh, I was working with Stan Hockman, and Stan decided he wanted to take have his weekends with Gloria. I understand. Uh, so they said, well, okay, we want to keep the show going. So I'll put you, we'll try and find another writer to work with. How about Glenn Mack now? And it's okay. You know, I mean, I know him a little bit. Uh, so they said, yeah, why don't you guys next Saturday start working together? <laughs> Cliff, that was it. You know, I mean, there, it was, uh, they just put us together and, um, I mean, right from the beginning, uh, it just worked, you know, and I mean, you can't, you know, they use the term chemistry a lot in sports and also in media and television, radio, oh, they have great chemistry. And people said that about us. Uh, and the th one of the things about chemistry, you can't fake it. I mean, if it's, it's either there or it's not, uh, and you certainly can't fake it for 21 years, which is how long we were together. But we just, you know, we just really liked each other. We had a lot of the same interests. Um, we we both were big movie guys, so we'd like to talk about movies during the show. We both like the same kind of music, sort of. I mean, he's more of a he loves the Beatles, and I was more of a Rolling Stones guy. But for the most part, we we had a lot of similar interests, and he has a great sense of humor. Uh, and he's really smart. I mean, he's really smart. Uh, and we just, um, I just enjoyed, honestly, when we would do that show, we started out doing four hours, we wound up doing three. Um, but it was just, it was just fun. I mean, it was really like, just, I'm going over his house, and we're just going to sit around, and we're just going to talk for three hours. Um, that That's how it felt. And uh, I think that's the way it came across to the listeners. And it was, it was tremendous fun. And, you know, we're great. I, one of the hardest things about retiring was retiring from him, you know, because I actually looked forward to those Saturdays of going out to the station and hanging out with a buddy for three hours. That was maybe the hardest part of the whole thing, because I, I knew I was going to miss those times. And we've stayed in touch and everything. But it was the fact that so many people really liked that show and it built up such a very faithful following. Uh, which I didn't even realize until I retired and all the cards and letters started coming in, how many people really looked forward to that show and liked it. That just gave me a great feeling. Uh, but it was because of the relationship that the two of us developed. And it was uh, it was just great, great fun. And I think the I think the audience picked up on that.
Awesome. Uh, you're an OG in the Philly sports media scape. I just wanted to give you your flowers and, you know, thank you for hopping on with us too, man. My, really appreciate hey, it. It was, it, was, it was great talking to you, Cliff. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Ray. You've been generous with your time as always. I know you get the one more question a million times wherever <laughs> you are. So we're, we're happy to uh, continue that tradition. Uh, are there any plugs coming up? Where are you going to be on TV after the Super Bowl? Do you have oh. book signings? Is, are there uh, Tommy and me? Let, where Because people cannot get enough of Ray Dittinger, as we know. So let's get all those out there before. All we right. Well, I'll, uh, I will. Uh, I'll be happy to do that. Um, I will I'll be doing a book signing. Um, I'll be signing copies of uh, Eagles Encyclopedia, Champions Edition, which I am now in the process of updating because we may have another edition coming out, depending on the outcome in Arizona. Uh, I'll be signing copies of the current uh, Champions Edition and also my, my memoirs, Finished Business, uh, at the Wheelhouse, uh, which is a, uh, a sporting goods outlet on, uh, on Lancaster Avenue, in Wayne uh, on this coming Sunday uh, from noon till two. So if you want to come by, I'll be happy to sign a book for you. Um, I will be on um, NBC Sports Philly uh, a lot over the next couple of weeks. They're doing those specials called Mission 57 uh, on Tuesdays and Fridays. I'll be on those and I'm sure I'll be part. I won't be going to Arizona. Uh, but I'm sure I'll be part of the, the studio shows that day at NBC Sports, so I'll be there. Uh, and thank you for mentioning um, Tommy and me, which you you came to see, uh, and I'm very grateful for that. Um, and uh, we and actually, it just just within the last two weeks, uh, we found um, we were contracted to do the play yet again this year, uh, and it, with this year it will be uh, at the Uptown. Performing Arts Center in Westchester, uh, and it will be uh, opening September the 8th, which will be uh, if the Eagles win the Super Bowl the day after they kick off their new season as world champion. Wow. Uh, and it'll run for two weeks at the Uptown Center. And tickets, actually, I was just notified today, tickets are going on sale this Friday. So if you have never seen Tommy and me, um, or if you've seen it and you want to see it again and bring a friend, uh, go to the Uptown, uh, Uptown Theater uh, in Westchester. Go online. Uh, and as of Friday, you can order your tickets. And uh, it's, uh, it's, I mean, I've had a lot of really fun experiences in my life, a lot of them. Um, but the success of Tommy and me, uh, the fact that it's still going after we debuted in 2016, you know, here we are in 2023 and it's still going strong uh, is one of the uh, is one of the really most fun things that I've ever been involved in. And uh, the Uptown is a wonderful theater. So folks out that way, if you want to come see Tommy and me, go to their website starting Friday and order your tickets. There you go. There's nothing the man can't do. Writing, talking, TV, radio, playwright. One of his books he mentioned, he's got awards behind him. Uh, he's got it all. So go, go see Ray on Sunday. He's always generous with his time. You know, you don't have football. Go get a book signed there. Go see Tommy and me in the fall. I've seen it. I vouch for it. It's terrific. You will, you will not be disappointed at all. And Ray, we look forward to seeing you uh, on TV here in the week. I know these runs, these special uh, Eagles memories that people have are even more special when we have your voice and your face uh, alongside everybody as they go through it. So really appreciate you coming on and being so generous with your time. It was my, it was my pleasure, Sheila. Always a pleasure to be with you. And uh, 
you to Cliff. And uh, hey, guys, keep up the great work. Ray, thank you a lot, man. Really appreciate it. Honestly, really appreciate it. Take care, guys. Appreciate that, Ray. Thank you, Ray. We'll be back on the Ringers Philly special later this week. Me and Ben Solak, we will start to break down this Super Bowl matchup. Thanks to everybody for listening, and we will talk to you soon on the Ringers Philly special.